You're listening to a DM podcast. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Paul Warren has an incredible story. An accomplished Muay Thai fighter, Paul was used to the punishing world of martial arts. But nothing could prepare him for what he faced in Afghanistan when he served in the Australian Armed Forces. Paul Warren, welcome to The Stick Up. Morning, mate. Thank you for having me. Mate, I've read your bio. What an interesting life that you've had. Yeah, I'm ready for a few boring years, to be fair. Um, I've had, had enough excitement and drama in my life, I think. <laughs> yeah. What What's a common factor in your whole story is just this remarkable resilience that you have. Where did that come from? Uh, honestly, I think, you know, even coaching a class where I still uh, coach Muay Thai last night, it's combat sports is what gave that to me and martial arts, I think, from a very early age. Um, you realise, you know, you don't get things all your own way. You need to work. Um, and, and even if you do everything correctly, you still might not end up winning. So... Uh, I think that that bred that resilience from a pretty early age. I've interviewed some people since we've been going, and it's been a common like it's a common factor in people that have had really disciplined lives that the the incorporation in the, of martial arts into their life. Have you found that that's really set a good structure for your resilience? Yeah, most definitely. And even at a young age, mate, what I found was, um, you know, if you play footy or yeah, whatever other sport, you're probably maybe training two or three times a week and you you, know, you might go to the pub with your mates or you fill in gaps where, where martial arts is like a, there's no off season. It's a five or six day a week commitment, seven days in some cases. So yeah, that, that structure, you've hit the nail on the head. That's that's what it's all about. Now growing up, mate, what did you want to be? What was your aspirations to, to be growing up? Oh, I actually wanted to be a footy player like really when I was young because I think... Um, yeah, my, my, my dad was a pretty successful footy player. Um, he was in that Group 7 competition down near um, Wollongong. So, yeah. um, But I wasn't that good. That was my only drama. Yeah, that helps to be good. Mate, grew, growing up uh, on the outskirts of Toowoomba, I believe? Yeah, that's right, yep. What was it like growing up around that area? It was interesting. It was a small town you grew up yeah? Uh, Crow's Nest, so uh, mm. town of about 1,000 people just outside of Toowoomba, about 45 k's away. Yeah, it was interesting as a kid, but you probably struggled for things to do. Like I was sort of more drawn to what was going on in the city and stuff like that. Um, and yeah. I probably am that way now still as well. And um, tell me, when did you start, you know, your journey with uh, martial arts? I believe it was karate you started off with. Yeah, it was. Um, so um, there was a good sort of club at the Toowoomba PCYC. I started there when I was around nine or ten years old. And it was a pretty successful sort of club in, in terms of competitions and things like that. So, yeah, it was um, sort of difficult to earn a little bit of respect from the other kids that were already established there. But, yeah, I think that sort of grounding for kids is really good. 
I find those sort of country towns like that, they're tough, tough people come from them towns, you know what I mean? It's sort of, you've got to, you, you know, like places like Cunnamulla and places like that, you've got to be able to fight, you've got to be able to hold your own to sort of not be bullied. In it. Did you find that? Yeah, definitely. I think a little bit of bullying and roughing up was sort of a rite of passage, as you'd know, we're, we're probably similar ages. Like, I think we've gone way too soft on things where people are offended by words and, you know, if, if that's not having an effect on on the ability for me to go about my day, if it doesn't get physical, then it doesn't doesn't really worry me. Like, but yeah, you're right. Those small country towns is yeah, they're sort of rough growing up. Um, you'd, you'd get tested, I guess, by the older kids. Mate, your transition into Muay you had what thirty odd fights, I believe. I did. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see now, especially back in coaching. Like, I've just seen sort of this year's calendar. There's probably two or three promotions every month where I had my first fight as a 17-year-old back in 1997, and you're probably lucky to fight two or three times a year. But now, so 30 fights, you know, I, I probably averaged three fights over a 10-year 10 10 year career. But, yeah, now you can sort of fight every few weeks. It's, it's crazy the amount of promotions out there. The first Muay Thai, fight I, Muay Thai fight I've seen was Scott Bannon versus John Wayne Parr. At Southport RSL, I was there, man, and I thought to I, I thought to myself, this is one brutal sport. There's there's no there's no hiding in that sport. Hey, both champion blokes as well. I've got a lot of time for Scott Bannon and um, and Wayne Parr. Um, believe it or not, I was actually meant to fight on that undercard. We'd driven down from Toowoomba, and then yeah, for some reason, which happens in the fight game, the person I was meant to be fighting with drew. So. But yeah, that, there was there was a lot of hype around that. Two legitimate world champions that were just sort of going to go at each other. A good fight, good fight. I just couldn't believe like like I'm a boxing purist, and uh, I just could not. believe. I, I thought I, like I was sitting there like I was with a sales manager from a company I work with, and I said, "Is this legal? Is is this like is this sanctioned? This <laughs> like the?" <laughs> and I, I was just amazed at you know the brutality of it all, but um. Obviously, someone like yourself, you, you, you achieved a lot. You won some state titles, an Australian title, I believe. Yeah, I think to put it in perspective, mate, uh, my first fight as a 17-year-old, um, I just got back from Denmark, so it was... Um, I should And that's from representing karate, is that right? Yeah, in, that's in right. And, I, and my ego was, you know, I got fourth in the world as a 17-year-old and I probably got a little bit carried away with myself and then that first fight, yeah, I was... Just, cocky 17 year old kid and a 4 to 30 year old man that bashed me so um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's no that's it that's a bit of humility yeah 100 percent. yep i have yeah. my parents trying to talk me out of continuing with this sport but you know like when i go and, and speak to school kids now i mean you you got to chase your own dreams not someone else's and i wanted to stick at it and become good at it how is how important is it for you to chase your own dreams? And I get it, and now I'm a father as well. I, I try and I try and lead my children, but I don't make decisions for them. I, I'll support what they want to do, where they want to go. Yeah, it's you, you can't just sort of be following what someone else um, sets out for you, or even I think community expectations and what society thinks you should do. I think yeah, you've 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 got to follow your own heart and your own head, and 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 chase those dreams yourself. I have a saying, don't be limited by other people's expectations. You know, I, I live by that, you know. I think it's important. Mate, tell us about, like, where did you go? Did you go to, you went and fought in Thailand or did you went and tr- you went into training camps in Thailand? Yeah, I went and trained over there. I probably had a few fights by then and very different times. Like, you, you know, you can, it's probably pre-social media as well. 
you can jump on Facebook now and see all these, you know, nice Thai training camps that you can go to. But, you know, Farongs or Westerners. And that's the name of a Westerners called a Farong, is that correct? That's correct, yep. And, it, you know, Thailand's, it's money-driven. Like, you, you even see now with the big Muay Thai fights, there's a lot of betting and, and the way their fights are structured even revolves around betting and gambling a little bit. But back then, late 90s, early 2000s, yeah, there, there wasn't, it wasn't as common as it is now. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you'd really, it'd test you again, I guess, mentally in a different way because obviously it was hot, humid, very, very hard. But initially, that they wouldn't put time into you. They'd put you in the corner with the kids and, and a lot of people would just quit and leave. But, yeah, you sort of got to keep turning up. Did you Were you in a camp like, like John Wayne Parr was or over there? or? Yeah, not, not to the extent that Wayne was, um, where he sort of really just immersed himself in it, lived and breathed it and... I don't think he had a return ticket. He was that invested. Yeah, for me, like, it was just, yeah, training in a camp and learning as much as I could, but but not sort of living there and, and, and that sort of commitment that he had. What happened to the um, Muay Thai career? When did that come to an end and what, and why? Um, in, in the book I wrote... Can you just tell us the name of your book? Yeah, it's called, it's, it is called The Fighter. Uh, that probably wasn't my choice. I was probably led by the publisher a little bit. But, yeah, I guess it makes sense from a you know, Muay Thai background and then obviously a, an army background as well. But really, I think my career, if I had one regret, it was probably not backing myself um, to go to the Gold, maybe go to the Gold Coast or go to one of the big gyms and really try and go to that next level. I probably lacked a little bit of confidence to do that. There's some really good gyms down there. Wayne Paz, uh, Boonchu Gym's one of them, Strike Force is another. There's some some great gyms that are still going and still producing champions now. It's strong on the Gold Coast, isn't it? Muay Thai is really, really strong. It's, yeah. Ray Hatsumura was promoting there for a long time. It's really strong. Like it's, you, you go for a drive and you see blokes jogging everywhere in their, and women in their, in their shorts that represent their gym and that sort of stuff. Yeah, most definitely. I'm looking forward to, I think, 3rd of March. Um, War on the Shore is a big promotion. It's at the Star at the casino down there. Um, that's Mark Pisa's. I fought on that way back in the day, so I'm glad to see he's brought that back. Um, and he'll bring some international fighters back over, which is great. It gives people, you know, something to aspire to, not just to fight domestically, but fight internationally. Okay, so when did you did you have an injury? Is that correct? That that sort of slowed you up. I did, yeah. I, I realised, you know, I was probably twenty seven at the time. I'd had two two Australian titles. Um, I kicked a guy's knee and, and fractured my shin pretty bad in the middle of the right one, and just sort of, yeah, couldn't run for a few months. They put a put a heap of weight on and just got a bit depressed. As as I've learnt now, um, particularly with defence and going back and speaking to their rehab groups. If you don't manage a physical injury, it can very quickly become a mental health thing um, because you, you, you've lost your identity a little bit. You're not doing what you normally do. You've lost that structure you talk about unless you can maintain it in a rehab-type format and get back to where you were. So I obviously did some contemplating at the end of that, lost my last fight, which I didn't think I should have with my own preparation uh, and, and thought, you know, what am I going to do next? I was working at an abattoir, which... Yeah, it's not the greatest job, but I was happy to do that because fighting was my was my habit, was my addiction. I just wanted to do that. Um, and I was fortunate to have a 10-year career. But, yeah, it was time to call it a day. And I, I looked 
um, similarities between the values I'd learnt from fighting and, and who I was as a person and the Defence Force fitted that perfectly, really. Tell us about, you know, that decision to join the Defence Force and why. It's a bit of a strange one from my, my family's perspective because a lot of military people come from military families. Um, I didn't have any of that background, really. Like, it wasn't in my, my sort of family line. If anything, from um, fighting and doing some door work in Toowoomba, I, I actually didn't like the army blokes. There was a bit of a, mm. a pack mentality at times. Um, They're known as meatheads by the bouncers, aren't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah. Well, I guess I guess I understand that now. There's, there's sort of a one in all in type mentality. I'm not sure. I think it was just the symmetry between who I was and where I was. And even though fighting had ended for me, I wasn't comfortable just jumping into a job that was ordinary I, I still felt there was a whole heap of life left to be lived and you know some adventure with defense as well um 9-11 triggered a lot of people joining around the same time i did was that a part of your part, part of your motivation yeah it has to be it has to be i think because you look at the area of operations where we were headed to it was all a direct result of, of some of that and while it was in the u.s i, I felt Personally, it was still an attack on the West and, um, yeah, like many other people, I joined to, to do my bit. Mate, off to Kapuka. My brother went to Kapuka. And how did you find that? That training would have been a walk in the park for someone like you. Um, mentally, yeah, yes, yes. Um, no, I just want to explain. Can, we, can you just explain what Kapuka is and what happens there? Yeah, for sure. So Kapuka is where every army person goes that's an OR, so... Uh, if you join in, in the officer stream, you go to RMC or ADFA down in Canberra. If you join just as a as a regular soldier, an OR they call them, other ranks, you start off as a private soldier. No matter what corps you go to, you go to Kapuka first. So we're all there together. Uh, it's it's roughly about 80 days, or it was then, uh, 2007 this was. And what, 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 did, what did your day consist of? It was really interesting, actually. So... You get on this bus and you get there at night and then, you know, defence talks about this shock of capture when you you sort of, you know, get hold of someone or and the bus deliberately gets there at night. It's to disorient you. You know, there's people yelling at you straight away. They're, they're trying to transform you from a civilian into someone that has attention to detail, a work ethic, um, does everything with a sense of urgency, sense of purpose, and then teamwork as well. That's, that's why they cut your hair the same. It's you're all the same. You're all this sort of mashed together but kapook is really a, a whole lot of boring stuff um you'll get out of bed about 5 30 6 o'clock um you'll be given really short and unmanageable time frames they'll be like you need to shave get dressed do this all in 10 minutes and it's just to create that sense of urgency i'm probably fortunate that i did it as a 27 year old where i looked around and my roommate who's still one of my best friends now uh brody keating he was 19, so that puts it in perspective of the the age demographic of who I was joining with. A lot of these guys were kids. Where because of that, did you resume sort of like a, like a leadership role straight away, like as the eldest sort of statesman? I tried not to, to be honest, because I talked to a lot of people out at um, Oki where I was sort of playing a bit of footy before I left, and their advice to me, the people who are in the military, was be the grey man, don't be at the front, don't be at the back, don't stand out, just be in the middle. Hmm. <laughs> believe it or not the thing that got me the most attention like when you walk into a, a military training camp and you've got 
warlord tattooed up your forearm, it, it brings you attention whether you want it or not. So, I'm want, like, would the officers target you because of it? Or Oh, the senior ORs, maybe, so corporals and sergeants and stuff like that. It's it's interesting. Like, like I said, you get there at night and they sort of line you up and there's a lot of yelling. They're trying to confuse you and just see how you are under pressure. Um, yeah, one of the blokes sort of said, you know, what's this about, tough guy? Do you want to fight me? And I'm like, in my you would have been going in a heartbeat. Like if the money, yeah. if the money's right, no drama. <laughs> yeah, not a problem. Yeah, <laughs> so you get a bit of stick, and they're like, "What's this about?" And you're like, "Oh, I was professional for ten years." And they're like, "All right, and they'll leave you alone." And then I'll give that a miss. But the interesting, next bloke. The interesting part about that, mate, is honestly, and and I sort of look back, and it was part of my book as well, because at the end of the day, you go through these processes so you can be put in a in a war zone or a warlike environment, and still be able to do your job and, and thrive. There was a young guy there, uh, pretty country sort of bloke. I think he had like a R.M. Williams shirt or something like that on. We were there probably 10 minutes. And because, you know, the guys there do their job, they're, the staff, they're sort of up and down and yelling and, and doing a bit of whatever. After 10 minutes, this kid put his hand up and just went, I'm out. This is not for me. And at the end of the day, knowing what I know now about defence, I kind of... I applaud the staff for that because they, that's their job. Yeah, the same for this kid. If, if you put, if that you realise now that's not for you, I think that's a good thing. Before you end up, you know, in a, in a team or isolated out of nowhere, and then things get pear-shaped. You wouldn't want that when you're in the middle of the bullets flying at you, would you? No, no, you can, you can't have it. So, yeah, I, I, it was really interesting. I, I applaud both decisions. Really, he realised straight away it wasn't for him and the staff had obviously done their job to make him uncomfortable enough to push him to that conclusion what about the like the training itself like you you, you see these tv shows where you you're running you've got logs and you're carrying rafts and all that did you was, was that would that be a fair depiction of uh the sort of the physical sort of training that you went through um, honestly, mate, not at Kapuka um, because it's it's so much about, you know, if your bed's not made properly, you'll come back and be turned upside down. You've got to polish brass. You do. You get introductions to field craft and things like that. But to be fair, I probably lost fitness over that period. Wow. Um, some of the PT was okay. But remember, this is for all cause. So a lot of people are going to be um, warehousing or queue stores or, um, I won't say medics because they carry even more stuff than we do out in the field. That sort of training that you're mentioning probably comes more at Singleton, which is um, the School of Infantry. So when you finish Kapuka, you all, you all get moved differently to what whatever corps you're going to. Um, and for the combat corps, um, yeah, down at Singleton is um, yeah, the School of Infantry. So it gets a whole lot tougher there. Because of your physical background, did you consider special forces or anything like that? Was that would have been that your, one of your driving ambition? Yeah, very good question. Um, I had, you know, I think this is part of the issue now is recruiters maybe a bit disconnected from the actual role and, and what goes on. I did have some recruiters, they brought in a direct entry uh, SF scheme, so special forces scheme, where you could either look at probably going to, to two commando down in Sydney at Holsworthy or um, potentially over over west with the SAS guys. Because that's the ultimate. Would that be, like, if you're a soldier, I don't know, like, the SAS guy, uh, guys sort of get the rock star sort of people. Like, uh, for me, I'd think, man, if I wanted to be in the army, that's where I'd, I'd hope to achieve. Is that what you would have been hoping to achieve, the SAS? Yeah, that's the ultimate. Knowing someone like Ben Robert Smith, I think he is the ultimate sort of 
was the ultimate soldier. Like, I think it's a bit unfair what's happening to him at the moment. Mm. Got a good relationship with him. It was his patrol that actually went in the night after us and sorted out what happened with our incident. So I'm forever grateful um, to him for that. Um, but, yeah, you're right. They're, they're the elite guys. But two commando aren't, aren't that far behind either. Is that, the Holsworthy, bit, is that the Holsworthy one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's obviously a bit of rivalry between those two because it's all alpha males, right? They're sort of like we're the best, no, you know, we're just as good. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. But for me, once again, it comes back to martial arts. I, I felt like if I tried to go special forces because I was a little bit more older and I, um, and I was trying to make a mature strategic decision, there was so much about soldiering I didn't know because I, I didn't know, you know, navigation, you know, the a lot of the weapon systems, I felt like I felt like that would have been trying to skip steps um, where I just I, I felt my the path for me would have been going to a battalion, trying to get deployed, get some experience, trying to get into a leadership role there, and then go to special forces. And how long before you got deployed to Afghanistan? Yeah, it was really interesting because I think the outside people perceive the army as this, you know, well-oiled sort of machine. I, and before I got out of Singleton, it was a little while, I got sort of held back. Uh, I got into a bit of an altercation with a guy during a work day. Uh, I was carrying a box and he threw a punch at me and I, I really wasn't happy. So How did that end? Uh, I knocked him out. <laughs> okay. Uh, hit him with a couple yeah, cool. of elbows. And um, obviously the military police didn't like that too much. Uh, went to a trial. Yeah, it all got sorted. Um, hmm. They just gave me a fine at the end of the day. And he yeah. got a broken jaw, or what? What happened? Ah, uh, <laughs> nose, I think. I must, yeah, yeah, hit him off a little bit. Oh, well, that's a fair result. And that was probably a lesson as well. Like, I, I don't think I've got a temper, but I'm not going to give anyone free shots either. Yeah. So for for me, once single had ended, and we had it, I had sort of had it mapped out as well because you know who's being deployed. Um, I wanted to go to the first battalion up in Townsville, so that's where I got posted to at the back end of 2008. What's it like, mate? Do you get a call or do you get an email or do you get a letter? or What's the go? Like, you're on, you're going. Well, the time I got up there, they were sort of all gearing up, ready to go. Yeah, so the team that was sort of chosen to go, they were already yeah, geared up and doing a lot of training. They got sent to Germany, all this sort of stuff. I got there reasonably late because getting held up with some, um, yeah. Legal issues. And things we'll like call it. that. <laughs> but literally, um, I'm like, all right. And they told us so many times they'd pick their team when we weren't being deployed. Um, so I dropped back into this group, and it was for a competition called Dog Cup. So every year all the battalions compete. It's the Duke of Gloucester Cup, and it's infantry skills. And I'm like, all right, I'll just drop back into here. You know, they've told us I'll just stay fit. But in my mind, somehow I just knew I was going to get an opportunity to deploy. Literally four weeks before everyone went, um, we got called into a – sergeant major's office and they just said in four weeks you blokes are going so which is, is what we all wanted like i think that's maybe something society doesn't understand like no one's being pushed onto planes to go to these war zones we've we've done all this training we're motivated this is what motivates us um you know no one trains to sit on the bench we all we all want to go and the people that didn't want to go and there were some incidents around that time in afghanistan one of my um, other mates from Two Commando lost both legs um, when they drove over an IED, Damien Tomlinson, uh, who's been a good friend and, and sort of mentor to me. Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of people that pulled off trips as well that just went, you know, I've got a family and, and I respect that as well. 
And did they have the option of doing that? Did they? Yeah. They, they, yeah. Wow. Hundred percent. Just, just tell me, what's it mean? Like you're jumping on the plane, you're going to this foreign country. It's a war zone. What's the adrenaline like? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's it's so different. You, I think, for a little while, you you're just on high alert all the time. People talk about sport and they're like, it's time to go to war and this sort of mentality. And I understand that from being a fighter. Imagine playing a game with no rules, no time limit, you know, no referee there. You don't know when it's going to start or stop, and mm. you're out there until until the job's done. Like it, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be yeah. And then you've got to battle terrain and conditions and everything else that goes along with it. So we came in through Kuwait. Um, I know they started going over via Dubai. Uh, later on but we went through Kuwait even that sort of sets you up for the experience you look around Kuwait and we're sort of intense what what was Kuwait like yeah crazy and it just set you up for for the experience so you you only had to look around and when we went out to the you know ranges and and did a bit of shooting and stuff there it was just a vehicle graveyard from the the war over there all right so you get to Afghanistan mate when like and your job was to go and Get rid of the IID. Is it is it an IID? IED. So improvised explosive device. They call them roadside bombs. Was a, a media term used, which was not really accurate because there's not weren't really roads where we were either. A lot of the time, um, these things were getting buried in the in the dirt, in the ground, in the yeah, all over the place. So um, wasn't really roads. How long? Before when you got to Afghanistan, how long until you bang you're on, you're in it you're you're working. So our first patrol, um, the crazy thing was we'd flown in before um, the platoon we were going into because it was a bit disjointed and disrupted. So once we got there, uh, probably the first patrol was about a week or two after that, and yeah, fifty plus degrees. You know, you're carrying forty fifty kilos worth of gear. Yeah, definitely. You know, not not hospitable sort of place. You're walking past farmers with AKs slung to their backs. You, you don't know who's who's who in the zoo, really. Um, that's what I mean. It's you, you can't compare sport to war. It's like you don't know when it's going to kick off and you don't know how long you're going to be there and how traumatic it's going to be when it does. So, yeah, you, you're a bit anxious for a little while. How did you deal with that anxiety, mate? Like, that's it's... it's... I mean, there's a good lesson here for people who do suffer from anxiety. How did you treat your anxiety in that situation, high-pressure high pressure situation? Uh, you have to acknowledge it, for one. Um, the more you try and, you know, put on that brave face. Uh, and we're all, you know, we're all very single-minded type people, um, quite similar. So you, you discuss it. You, you'd openly discuss it. I'm you know, feeling like this. To be fair, a lot of us just couldn't wait for it to kick off because there was two things. You, you're curious initially to see how you react when it all goes to shit and, and how you how you work together to overcome it. So, yeah, crazy environment. But from that very first patrol, there's probably 10 kilometres in that heat, pretty slow sort of going. You don't want to rush through. You want to take in as much information from the ground as you can. Um, we knew what we were in for because at the end of that, uh, we saw a local Hilux we heard the noise, actually. They hit one of their own um, IEDs. It pretty much, you know, blew the engine out of this thing. And then it opened up and, and there must have been 12, 12 locals get out of this car. I don't know how they were jammed in there, but, yeah, somehow they all survived. But I think that was, that 
that was sort of an ominous sign as to what we were in for. Through 2009, which was the bloodiest fighting season Afghanistan had, it's called a season because they only fight in the summer. It's You won't get vehicles going in the winter when it's minus 20 and, you know, just covered in snow. So um, they stockpile weapons during the winter, sell opium, you know, harvest poppies and all that sort of stuff to stockpile their weapons for the fighting season. So 2009, they were probably more inclined to blow us up where we were than come out and actually fight with us. Tell us the day of your accident, mate. Tell us, do you mind it being described as an accident? Accident, in, no. Incident, let's oh, say yeah. incident. I'd, I think incident, accident, you know, we were, we were there deliberately, we were doing a deliberate job and it was just yeah. part and parcel of, of war, I think. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say, say incident, but yeah, yeah, I can appreciate definitely where you're coming from. So I was in a very well-skilled um, section, about eight, eight blokes, uh, we lived in the back of a Bushmaster for a couple of weeks. Bushmaster's a transport vehicle that carries soldiers, yeah? Like it. Yeah, yeah. It's got a V-shaped hull. So um, when it drives over explosives, um, that's designed to shape the blast away uh, from the people inside, and it saves so many lives. I know Ukraine was sort of after more Bushmasters. They're probably Australian-made, were they? Yes. Were they Australian-made? Yeah, yep. wow. They're, they're still being made here in... Um, Eagle Farm in Brisbane, Vitalis. Great, great vehicle. All right, so just run us through how the incident took place. Yeah, it was a funny one because, like I said, the eight of us were the commanding officer's tack party, so we were just out there with him, you know, doing what he wanted to do. He wanted to see as much of the, the area as he could and see what was going on, and I, I think he could sense we were a little bit antsy, not bored, but we wanted to get stuck in a little bit. Um, so on the 17th of July... He came. They came to us in the afternoon and said, "We're going to add you, just you eight blokes, um, to another mission, not far from there. You know, you'll have a pretty minor role, but just get out and get amongst it with these guys." Um, and the mission was to go in and, and search for a known IED maker. So they're very good at uh, wiring these th- things up using palm oil containers. They're quite sophisticated for what's perceived as probably a third world country. Um, they're very good at warring these things up um and the guy in the area we were after had done a lot of damage uh, i think he'd killed either some americans or british or dutch troops or all of the above really like he yeah he was he was definitely doing some damage with the devices he was building so we, we knew roughly where he was we sort of formed up on one of the, the features where we left all the vehicles uh, and walked in on foot in the middle of the night um it's probably about five k's patrolling we got into the area before first light, so it was still dark, put down in place. That's the best way to do a coordinate search because, you know, they're going to wake up and you're going to be there. You, you've, you've got to jump on them a little bit. I haven't got time to go and hide things. or, or No something. different than the drug raid, what the coppers do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The two best times to attack people is before first light and then at dusk as well. Yeah, for some reason that's when people tend to, to relax a little bit, I think. You want to disturb that as much as you can. So, yeah, we, we had engineers and everything with us. Um, they'd gone down and, and you know, with their wands and swept the grounds. Um, definitely no fault of what they did. I, I admire those guys. They're out there trying to find bombs every day. Not not the best job. But really, where we were, it was a, kind of a rear position. Like, we'd, I'd, had a, I'd had a belt-fed machine gun, a MAG-58, 
So you lie on you lie on the ground to shoot that. It's um it's quite a large weapon you can fly. And, and what what would one of them be weight wise to carry? 15, 16 kilos. That's enough over a five kilo, uh, five kilometer rate, uh, period to carry. Oh yeah, when you got probably seven or eight liters of water, probably seven hundred rounds of ammo with it, and then everything else you need. It's um. I think I was 88 kilos, but with all that kit on, I was, I was probably closer to 120. Wow. So you're walking, you're walking in, mate. You're walking in. What happened? Yeah, for sure. The walk in, for starters, is just, you know, we have night vision, which is one of our advantages um, using that. The only drama with that is it, it doesn't give you any depth perception. Um, and Afghans just, it's loose rocks. So you're just falling over everywhere. You know, trying to be quiet, trying to be stealthy, but just sliding around, and you've got to be really careful. Obviously, where you put your feet, with IEDs being one of the biggest threats. But yeah, it, it seemed like forever. And you, I remember looking up at one point through the night vision on on the way in there, and, and you see this big sort of line of troops walking in. It was, it felt pretty cool. You're definitely part of a big team going in there to do a job, and, and hopefully take care of this bloke that was sort of um, doing a lot of damage. So. Well, the time we got to the spot where they put us down on the ground, which for me was aiming my gun down towards, you know, the village or the, the koalas, their mud huts, wherever, you know, the people were going in. Yeah, the, the sun wasn't too far from coming up. It seemed like a really quiet day. And the big thing was the locals weren't hesitant to come near us. So normally if the Taliban had put IEDs in, the locals know where they are. And then they'll, they'll obviously avoid that that place at all costs. So um, where I was, we were actually, you know, they'd take people from the search and they'd just put them down here and sort of try and get some information or just get them out of the way, really. Um, and they were they were happy to sit a couple of metres away from me. Um, ben, ben Renato was probably three or four metres away from me. Uh, and I'd been in that position for probably, I'd say, roughly two hours. Um, and you can't lie perfectly still on the ground in 50 degrees with all your kit on for two hours. So there's a fair bit of movement going on around there. People had actually walked up and down um, not far from where we were. It was This thing was just buried and hidden that well that it wasn't picked up by any of the equipment. It just, I don't know, I've, I've stopped trying to figure it out and just sort of accepted it for what it was, to be honest. Um, I moved my foot and just being fucking launched into the air, a massive, the percussion, the noise, just this massive bang. My, my initial thoughts were because of the terrain that maybe someone had hit us with a uh, rocket-propelled grenade from one of the other features, that was my first thought. Uh, I knew it couldn't have been a suicide bomber because the locals around us had been searched. These are all the... 100 mile an hour thoughts rushing through your head while you... Is that what you're actually thinking when you were in the air getting flung around the air, yeah? Close enough. You're trying to figure out what happened, yeah. Like in that first 30 seconds, you've just got a million things going on. All this dust, high pitch ringing in your ear that you hear on the movies when they when there's an explosion. That's definitely it. Um, had a pretty major surgery um, on my right ear after that. Um, it was actually one of the most painful ones I had. But, yeah, all these thoughts are going through your head because of the way the Taliban fight. An IED normally doesn't mean it's it's a one and done. They normally will. That'll be the initiator, and then they'll come out and try and um, shoot at you with small arms or 
it doesn't stop there normally. So, were you aware of that of that style of fighting? Were you sort of when that happened to you? Was there something in the back of your mind that this is coming next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not done. This is the start, um, which is the way we're trained with with you know all the information and intel that we get when we first get into country and I'm just just looking at it. So yeah, it's it's not very common that you'll just get blown up and, and they're not watching and then they sort of attack you after that with with small arms and, and gunfire and whatever else. So you, you, you land, mate, you, you, the explosion happens, you land. Tell us a bit more about that. What You look down, what sort of state was your leg in? So just dust and everything, uh, my ears just screaming at me, just that high-pitched ring, I'm like, and my first thought was, all right, I'll, I'll get back to the closest person to me who was Ben. I, I've Could you crawled. move? What, what was your movement like? Your leg was basically yeah. fucked. Yeah, I crawled a little bit, and I'm like, fuck, this is not Did you visualise? Did you see what had happened to your leg? Not at that point. Uh, when I tried to sort of move myself along with my arms, trying to get back to Ben, I'm like, this is not, not working real well, and... I don't know what happens with you. Was body. there pain? Was there like a shitload of pain coming out? Not, not immediately. It was a, it was coming like a, a train for sure. Like it was, but it's amazing what your body does. Whether it's an adrenaline dump or what's going on, um, I just tried to crawl a couple of times. I'm like, fuck, this is not working real well. I looked down and it was just a mess. It was just a bloody mess. Uh, my right foot was completely gone. You could see, you could see my tib and fib. Literally, had done that. Tibular and fibula, two yeah. bones in the in the, in your lower leg below your knee were just a mess. Um, I, I still count myself um, very lucky because at the time I was blown up. Like I said, I was carrying probably seven hundred rounds of um, three hundred eight ammunition. I had grenades on me. I had all sorts of stuff and. And none of that went off or anything? Well, yeah, to to put it in context, it turned my pistol into a bit of scrap metal that I had strapped to my leg. But what, do you have a 9mm? Do you have a 9mm? Yeah, all gunners um, have a secondary weapon, and it's normally a 9mm. So um, I had, had a 9mm on a low rider strapped to my thigh, and I got a fair bit of damage there now because it, it blew that into my leg. Yeah, it was, it was just... The force of this thing, but I, I definitely count myself lucky. I was trying to get back to where Ben was. Yeah, saw what a mess, messy state this was in, and then uh, looked up and saw my mate um, James Thorne, and and I just said, "Man, I, I need some help." And he was one of the first people over to me. I admire him for being the professional soldier he is, but I think he was even the first person to Ben and just went. Okay, there's there's nothing we can do here, and moved on to me. So, did he tell you what had happened to Ben? No, I was I was literally asking um, mm. because he was the person closest to me. Um, no one would say anything, which in the back of my mind, I, I had a fair know. idea. Uh, so it was two very significant blasts. It was an anti-personnel one, which is you know, big as your hand round. Um, but it was wide up to um, water rounds a couple of metres away. So one of the – it's a lucky, it's lucky we weren't all taken out with the amount of mortars it was sort of wide up to. 
Um, but one of the pieces of shrapnel hit Ben up under the helmet and killed him instantly. Mate, and, and t- just talk about the evacuation. What happened there? Like to get you out of there? What is it? Is it like a, like the helicopters fly in, or what's what's the deal? <laughs> it's controlled chaos. So when I talk to people about training now, whether it's military people or or whether it's you know fight sports or whatever, you know there was people that trained things not till they got them right, but they did it again and again and again until they couldn't get it wrong. That was the difference, mm. and the army will do that to you. Like you'll be there at eight, nine o'clock p.m. like on a work day if you're deploying, just going through scenarios and situations, and there's so many little pieces that have to come into play. So. Uh, one of the, we had a medic out there with us, Jackie de Gelder, and believe it or not, it's such a small world. Her brother Paul was the bloke bitten by the bull shark in Sydney Harbour. I'm trying to but interview him. Yeah, he's he's a mate of mine him, yeah. as well. Like such a good guy. Yeah, he's doing lots of good things with Shark Week in the states. But yeah, and no, I'm friends with him because really, before 2009, Australia hadn't seen amputees, uh, multiple amputees, probably since the end of Vietnam. So there was Paul with the shark attack, uh, Damien blown up in Afghan, and then I was as well, and then a few more to follow, like Curtis McGrath as well. So, you know, Jackie came over to me, did her thing. While that's going on, she's literally keeping me alive. While that's going on, you've got the uh, radio operator or a signals guy calling in uh, what's called a nine-liner because we're a fair way out in the Baluchi Valley. So you've got to let, you know, obviously let people know there's a golden hour, they call it, once you lose a limb in, in theatre and if you don't get them that person to a hospital within 60 minutes, you, your chances of, of keeping keeping them alive are, are drastically reduced. So um, thankful to that, to, to that guy. Um, they had a chopper to me, an American chopper, in 16 minutes. Wow. But it was a, it was a long 16 minutes. Like the, the pain sort of hit me like a truck. Um, all my veins had collapsed, obviously, because you're bleeding so much, which the only option then is to go into um, bone marrow. Um, so they pull out like a cordless drill type thing and just punch it into your bone until they hit your bone and try and feed some fluid in there, which honestly was more painful than the leg, but, yeah, kept, kept me alive. Um, I remember being slapped a few times or you know, them trying to keep me from going to sleep because it's a 50-plus degree day. Um, I went cold and wanted to go to sleep, which is probably not the best sign. That's the, an indication your blood pressure's dropping, that, that cold, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So you get to a hospital. What happens there? You wake up and you, you're missing your foot. Like, that realisation is like, wow. What, what's, what's your way of thinking like? <laughs> It's a crazy ride. I just remember, like, you know, the image of looking down and seeing that. Yeah, I'll send you the photo later if you want. I got it a few years later <laughs> at one of the Dutch medics. <laughs> it's sort of burnt into your brain. Um, I had a sense of calm once, you know, this helicopter just came screaming in, one of the Yank helicopters. Once I got onto that and, and whatever they put into my system then, I'd, it was a bit of calm. Um, they loaded... A 10-year-old boy with me, a local kid, he was all shrapneled through the chest and he actually lost half his foot and was still trying to run away. Um, the boys had to chase him down. You know, that's why IEDs are so shit. They're indiscriminate killers. They'll 
that you know they've just hurt their own kid and stuff as well. So yeah, that young fella survived though, which is great. You wake up, your you, you, your foot's missing. Like straight away, for me, I go into resentment. Like I, in my case, I was sexually abused in a boys' home, and straight away, when the realization of that kicks in, it you go into resentment. Would would it be fair to say something like that happened to you? Or? I don't think I was thinking that clearly, and then yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine what what your circumstances were like either. I I do. I'm a bloke, I have a bit of a temper, I'd, I'd feel exactly what you felt in that situation. I'd feel resentful and I'd, I'd want to hurt someone <laughs> with your mm. circumstances. Um, what was your mindset though, Paul? Like you're waking up, you've, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you thinking, geez, life's just changed for me? Yeah, it's a mixture of a lot of things. you're an athlete because you're, like, you're, you're an elite athlete and you know the ramifications of sort of losing a leg. So what's going on there? What's this is an interesting, real interesting part. What do you, what what do you make peace with there? Uh, it took me a long time, to be fair. I, I'm not going to say I just handled it like a champion, I, because that's not the truth. So much confusion, really. I remember waking up, and it's literally the worst day of my life. Um, I looked around the room really quickly. I, I still sort of vaguely remember it now. You know, I'd obviously been under anaesthetic because of that. They tidied my leg up, kept me alive. I talked to a medic mate um, a little bit later. They nearly lost me on the table because of low blood pressure and things like that a few times. So from that aspect, I'm, I feel fortunate. I feel resentful, like you said, because I'm looking around this room hoping to see Ben in a bed in there. Your mind's just so clouded. You've had anaesthetic, you've had painkillers, you get... Mm. And then I've got two or three people standing there sort of over my bed like, hey, this has happened and, and Ben's gone. And um, Back then I, I wasn't the best at expressing expressing emotions. I, I probably got to where you said, I'm like, well, all right, you've given me this good news now. Fucking get out of here like. I couldn't get up and walk away. I just had these three people or these people sort of looking at me, almost seeing what reaction I was going to come out with. Like, and it's just confusion at that, at that stage. So you knew the severity of the incident. I'm looking down, wondering if I've got toes on the other foot. That was all bandaged up pretty hard. Uh, they left a phone in there to call my uh, partner at the time. Yeah, it's, 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 it's this big cloud of things that you've got to work. It takes months to work through one by one and just see where you land. There's no, there's no clear decision initially of, of how you feel. So, how long after the incident where you saw Ed lifted? Where did you go to from there? How did you like? Did you get back to Australia? Or did you go via somewhere else? Or so um, with our coalition partners. So you know, obviously the US, UK, um, Canada, New Zealand, all, all the guys we fought alongside. Yeah, it was, it was probably a couple of days. And then Blackhawk airlifted down to um, Kandahar, which is one of the other sort of bigger bases there. Yeah, once again, they had sort of a CT machine and a few things like that because obviously not only have got concussion symptoms to worry about from my fighting career, <laughs> I've like now sat on an explosive as well, which tends to shake your brain pretty hard. A good mate of mine who was on that trip, who's now in federal politics actually, Phil Thompson had a brain bleed after being blown up three times before they pulled him out of there as a 21-year-old kid. So, yeah, it got down to 
hospitals, they just cut all your clothes off, making sure they haven't missed anything. Your legs still open with like a bit of a, a vacuum sort of pump on it because obviously the big threat now is infection where they're going to have to cut you up higher. I was confused because I know when I looked down, I had my right knee um, and by that point I didn't, but I'd been moved to another hospital where no one could tell me why. Yeah, a lot of thoughts going on at that time. Mate, where did the big move, like did you go from Kandahar back to Australia? No, so Kandahar to Bagram. Everyone goes back through Germany. So we're loaded up at Bagram and it's just, you're once again on one of the big Air Force planes, just stretches three high. And it's times like this that prompted Fortune Enough through Invictus Games to have met Prince Harry a few times. I was, that was in my questions. Oh, yeah. So, but his, his idea for those games came from that circumstance because it's very powerful. They, they pulled him out of there and they sent him home on one of these planes. And you look back and it's just people that had been messed up. Like the, the nurses and medics do an amazing job. They're just up and down all night treating all these people until we could get to, to Germany. You land in Germany and it's just one of the big stretchy buses that's extra long buses that's, um, comes to pick everyone up and they're just yeah, loading stretches up into the back of that. So um, massive hospital in Germany, Landstuhl, where a lot of the American forces get posted, um, particularly their medics, and I was going in for surgeries every second day there. Um, so they're essentially taking me in, scrubbing the tissue of the open <laughs> wounds because infection is, um, yeah, so... That's your highest risk. And then how long were you in Germany for before you – like was it – how did you get back to Australia? I think it was a week or two. Um, they'd flown my brother over. My brother was a decent fighter in his own right and he had probably had over 40 fights. I think he kept going after I finished just so he could say he had more. But, yeah, they sent him brothers. over. Don't you hate a brother that's like that? <laughs> yeah. He always wants to outdo you. Hate yeah. That. They rolled me over to um, – because I had a couple of big wounds, probably as round as a 50-cent piece – into my back, but you could probably see maybe an inch into it from mm. a couple of the big pieces of shrapnel, and they rolled me over to change the dressings, and I saw my brother just go green and, <laughs> <laughs> like, good good support you are, mate. Like, mm. And yeah. I think, you know, what, what what's the realisation, like, you realise, what, what were you planning? Like, okay, I've lost my leg. What, like, what was the plans? What? It took me a long time to think with clarity. Um because of the heavy amounts of, of pain meds, obviously, initially, you get addicted to those as well, um, which I had some dramas with over the first 12 months. And the fact that you're taking all these opiates, it it just keeps putting off what you need to confront, which is what's going on in your head about the incident, about coming up with a plan of who am I now, what am I going to do? Because my, I thought I was a soldier for life. Like, I, I actually did like it. You know, I, I'd set out a bit of a pathway I never thought I was going to be an SAS bloke. I thought uh, I'd maybe go to two commando and have a crack at that down in Sydney. But, yeah, it's your identity. You've got to – it takes you a long time to sort of – and you fight a few things on different fronts and go, well, no, I can still do this and I'm going to prove to you that I can. Yeah, it's definitely a process to come up with a plan. The doctor said to you, you'll never run again. Was that a motivation to go, yes, I will? Yeah, 100%. If that's oh, the fighter in you. Is that the, that'd be, it'd be a fair estimate to say that's the fighter in you. When someone says, oh, you're not going to beat this bloke or you're not going to beat that bloke, you go, oh, let's have a crack. 
yeah, best thing you can do to me. I don't know, we're, we're fighters, we're soldiers. You need to you need to be challenged. And I think that's a problem in the veteran community today. There's so much entitlement and here's your pension and sit at home. I, I couldn't think of anything worse, uh, to be honest. I don't – every now and again I've needed a hand up, but I, I don't need a hand out. I don't, I'm not that person. That's a great attitude. That's a yeah. great attitude. Like that is a fighter's attitude. Well, that's what I want my kids to see. I can't, I can't roll over and let my kids see if it gets tough, you just quit. I can't. You come out the army, the athlete in you comes out. I'm off to the Invictus Games. How did that all come about? Yeah, it was crazy. I, I sort of fought the fight, like you said. Uh, I stayed in defence for a little while. Prosthetics were evolving because of war, essentially. Um, so a lot of prosthetics back then were made for maybe elderly people, people with diabetes, not people that wanted to live high active lives. So during that rehab time when I stayed in defence, um, they came out with the X2 prosthetic and then the X3, which is what I've got now, um, stuff with microprocessors, and it's really, it's probably $150,000, $170,000 leg. Mm. So, and warfare, this is coming out because of that. The Americans threw a whole heap of money at it a European company to, to design this, they've actually sent people back, hmm. uh, redeployed them on prosthetics, which is insane. The doctor said you, you've lost your leg, you're never going to walk again, you're motivated as you are as an athlete. And where did we go from, from here? Yeah, it was the three guys I talked about earlier. So Paul DeGelda and Damien, and, and we all, yeah, we're competitive. We're always, we're sort of seeing who's the first person to get up and walk. Like he did it in six, seven weeks. I think I did it eight or nine weeks, something like that. Um, but there's things in life where you have a choice. And initially I was in a world wheelchair. Um, Defence weren't prepared for the injuries we had. I think they went through a phone book and found a prosthetic place. Um, I went in there. Um, for some reason, I wasn't even walking yet. Um, and like I said, with my pistol, I had a lot of damage down my thigh. And I, I asked him about running and he said, man, you're going to have enough dramas just walking again with that damage. So um, forget about it. He didn't want to answer it. And right Challenge then, accepted. Yeah, right then and there, I, ma- I made a choice. He wasn't going to tell me what I was capable of. And uh, I got a, I got a bit emotional, like whether it was the painkillers or whatever else. But I, I just turned my wheelchair around and I left. I'm like, that's I don't want to work with someone like that, if that's what you think. There's a guy down in Nara, actually, um, He's a German bloke, uh, worked for Otto Bock, the big prosthetic company. He is the best prosthetic person in this country. Um, Jens Borfeld, his name is. He runs ex- uh, Extremity down there in Nara. Yep, he sort of, he's been my, my prosthetic guy since that time. I got to the point where I was running again. You know, defence didn't really want to want to keep me, but they didn't want to let me go either. So I just got to the point they wouldn't let me do promotional courses. I'm like, well, I'm not here to kill time. I'll I'll get out and I'll get a job. And you know, my daughter was born in 2010, so that was a driving factor uh, for me. I'd given up all the pain meds and all that sort of stuff to be to be a good dad. Had a second child on the way, so I wasn't going to let defence make decisions for me. I I got out and worked on a refugee camp over on Meru, actually, in security teams over there. So they talked about this thing, Invictus, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no worries, it'll just be... I didn't really think about it, to be fair. I just went, yeah, this will be okay. 
um, finished night shift on Nauru, flew back to Australia. A couple of days later, we're on a plane to London. And when you got there and saw how big this thing was, I'm like, Maybe I should have done some preparation. Like mm. I've just been focused on working and not so much athletic stuff. But it was on Buckingham Palace. This thing was all over London. The inaugural one was massive. Made some great friends from other countries in similar circumstances. Mickey Yule's a double amputee that can bench press 200 kilos you know, in com games. And you surround inspiring people where you can talk to each other about how they how they deal with things, whether it's physically, mentally, like it, it's a strong bond you create. I ended up running the 100 metres over there. I finished fifth. It probably wasn't my best. But that wasn't the point. It was about doing it. Like I'd, I'd prove. You proved that doctor wrong. He was yeah, in yeah. his knuckles. Yeah. He just didn't want to put the work into my prosthetics where I could get to that point. So, yeah, Invictus was a great thing. Um, it's interesting being around Harry. Prince Harry, I wanted to ask you, what's he like? Mate, he's just one of the lads in that environment. There's no, it's not prim and proper. Like the the London one, Curtis McGrath and I got to meet, well, he's the king now. And Will. Yeah, Charles and Camilla and and Will and all these other people that were at athletics that day in 2014 and fully supportive of it. It's a a great event. But Harry, like he'd go around to all the teams, get all these photos, but. By the time the closing ceremony came and, you know, Foo Fighters were playing, it's they really turned it on. It was something really unique. He, he just wanted to have a beer and just be one of the lads. 2016, I got to work a little bit more clo- a bit close closely with him. I'd, you know, my book come out in 2015, um, which sort of gave me a bit more profile. Um, so they made me captain of the Australian team for 2016. Which was great. How did that um, feel? How did that feel, mate? Representing your captaining your country. That's the piece that was missing, I think, mate. Like when you asked me, like how I handled things, I thought that that time for me was over. Like, but it wasn't. I, and I was very thankful to get the chance to a compete again. You know, to to represent my country again. Like it's something I'll always treasure. Like you, and it's such a great experience. With the captain's job, it's probably less about competing and more about. I guess, the media events and things like that. I got to do a mental health symposium with Prince Harry and George Bush. Went live on ESPN, which was great, and was talking about different issues people are facing. So people in the US face the same situations we do here. When they leave defence, they probably they isolate themselves so they go bush a little bit, and that's not where the services are if people need psychologists, physical therapy, all that sort of stuff. So, And that leads us into what you're doing now, like the motivational support stuff and that, you know? So tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about what you do, like you're a well-regarded uh, motivational speaker. and Yeah, I've definitely enjoyed sort of um, doing some speaking. I've probably shut the media out a fair bit until I had a conversation with Paul DeGelder down at a prosthetic place. And you know, he was doing a lot of media at the time. And, and he said, mate, just yeah, have your say. Otherwise, you know, the media are going to make just print their stories anyway, which they do. Uh, a lot of the stuff that's been written about our incidents not correct yeah so i decided to do a few things then i've yeah, done a bit with the cowboys like north queensland cowboys what did what, what was what what have you done there yeah i was definitely grateful for that i've known michael luck for a little while he he was one of the really good footy players in toowoomba and went on to have a, a great career and now he's a great administrator in footy he's the head of football department up there todd payton being the coach uh great guy when he had under 20s, we'd go in and sort of do uh, talks to them around Anzac Day and what it means to work for your mate. You know, there's no such thing as quit. 
on, on days like that. And a lot of the, the symmetry between a soldier, communication, trusting your mates, the people around you, trust the, the game plan, things like that. Um, but then being agile enough to change that if need be. It's common to athletes as well. There's a lot of commonality there. So I'd been working in defence industry for four years. Um, I'd set up, a, designed and implemented a program to get other wounded um, soldiers back into work, which won the Prime Minister's Award in 2020. And I think that's a big part of solving this depression and suicide piece. People need to be part of teams and working, not sitting at home on pensions where there's no accountability, like taking pain meds and drinking. Of course, that leads to depression and suicide. So that, that program's still going over at Rheumatale. And then, yeah, the Cowboys approached me and said, we want you to do like a logistics manager type role, but, you know, like talk to the young guys, be in around them. Hopefully some of that resilient stuff rub, rubs off. And I learned a lot while I was there because the first time you sat down and had dinner with them, they're just, they're kids. They're 20, 21, 22-year-old kids, a lot of them, that have a lot of pressure on them to perform as well in front of, you know, a lot of people and, and their financial security you know, depends on that. So there's a lot of pressure on those guys. I understand that from fighting. Performance anxiety is a big thing. And I deal with that now when I'm coaching. I've, I've seen people that are eight or nine in the gym. When you turn the lights on, put put a crowd out there, some music and all these distractions, they become a four or five. It's performance yeah. anxiety and it's... Man, you, you're a master at that. Yeah, I'm trying, really trying to with that. shape people... You know, to bring their best performance um, when it when it matters. Paul, where can people find you at? Um, I don't have a website at this stage. I'm sort of doing a lot of speaking jobs with defence. I'm going down to Randwick in March to speak to a lot of the welfare officers, which is great. I've yeah, I'm just yeah, Paul Warren. I'm on Facebook, Paul Warren four eight four on Instagram. Yeah, if people want to reach out and ask me things, I'm I'm an open book. I'm more than happy to do that. You know what you should do? Can I just give you one? Get on TikTok, man. You'll be a sensation there telling your stories. I'm on, I'm on TikTok, man. I'm telling you, you would be phenomenal. You've got the right, you've got everything right there to do tick, mate. You'd be a sensation. So get over there. I'll see you there. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm working in defence industry again at the moment. Um, COVID and the Cowboys was, was a bit rough and I was sort of dealing with a divorce as well at the same time. So moved from Townsville down to Brisbane and yeah, I work with um, Keynote. You can find me on the Keynote website where people sort of book in and, and yeah, do speaking jobs and things like that, which I'm more than happy to do. Mate, I could talk to you all day. You're one of the most interesting people I've ever met. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> man, your story. And I, I'm trying to do some work with uh, this uh, with these troubled youth, in particular ones out of our springs. Man, I, I think you would be perfect to come out there with us. And So hopefully we can get you on our team. Mate, I would love that. I, um, you know, there's a couple of Indigenous kids that come into Voodoo Combat where I train. Um, yeah, people can find me there in the Gap in Brisbane as well. Like I'll, Voodoo I'll, Combat is that? That'd be on Instagram. Yep. Yeah. Let's go. Give Paul a follow. I encourage people to. If you want to be inspired by someone, as someone who's overcome adversity and someone who just lives and breathes resilience, give this bloke a follow. Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the Stick Up. Mate, thank you for having me. Really appreciated the time, yeah. Been a pleasure.